have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Ruth chapter 4. Uh, if you're just joining us online, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm the pastor here. I have been watching the uh, numbers of our like online gatherings, and they've been climbing a little bit over the last few weeks, so that's kind of interesting. And so if you're new and I haven't met you before and you're just joining us online, super glad that you're here. Um, if you were with us last week, I told you that we were going to take a week here and talk about a Christian view of war and peace, which we are going to do. Uh, but as I got into this week of studying, I realized, wow, I know very little about this, and one week is not going to suffice. And so just want to give that sermon another week for study and to kind of marinate. And so today we're going to continue on in Ruth, and then we'll spend uh, hopefully next week and the week after that just looking at some church history, looking at the scriptures, what has the church thought about these things in the past, and hopefully give us a uh, my goal is to not tell you what to think, but to hopefully give you a framework for how to think about uh, war and peace, because there's uh, a few different ideas that have been in the people of God throughout our history. And so, uh, again, Ruth chapter 4 is where we are going to be uh, this morning. Now, many of us have movies that you've seen a bunch of times, but you still enjoy watching them. I know for some of you in the room, that's Hallmark movies. Am I right? Yeah. So you like, you know, you have that one or two movies that you really like. I was thinking of uh, which ones they were for me, and the first two that popped into my head uh, was uh, at Christmas time, Home Alone. You know, it's a classic. You got to watch it, and it's like I know that um, I know that Kevin is gonna like beat up the bad guys, but I still want to watch it. I still want to see it. I know it's gonna happen. It's great every time it happens when he booby traps the house, uh, and I still enjoy seeing that. Or maybe like a sports movie does it for you, right? I enjoy sports movies. Uh, I used to enjoy to play sports. And, and so um, the, the first movie I thought of that's like a super good climactic movie that I like to watch every time is that movie Miracle about the 1980 U.S. men's hockey team beating the Soviets at the Olympics. Uh, right. So maybe you've seen that movie or you know the story. And like I know when I'm watching the movie that Mike Ruzioni is going to score the game winning goal and the U.S. is going to win. But I still want to watch it anyway. I still I still like to watch the clip of Al Michaels. Just, you know, do you believe? Yes. That whole thing. I love it. And there's something about that for us, that like we, these stories that give us that payoff, we like to go back to them. And chapter four of Ruth is a little bit like that for anyone who's ever read this book before. If you've read this before, you know that chapter four is a movement from expectation to kind of fulfillment. Uh, you might say from emptiness to fullness. So fullness might be a good word to kind of sum up chapter four. But we also have to look for, we don't have to look hard, but we have to look for redemption in this chapter. And so if you read this chapter, you're going to notice that Redeemer and Redeem are key parts of this chapter. These words are all over the place. So this is a chapter about fullness and it's a chapter about redemption. And it's like over the top, right? It's an over the top redemptive story. And so uh, there's an extravagance of redemption here that is amazing. And the Bible is like that. The Bible is extravagant with God's grace and his redemption because God is extravagant like that. And it's especially true in the book of Ruth. It's, it's the movie that you've seen already if you've read this book of the Bible before, but it's so good you just want to watch it again and anyways and experience it again and stop yourself from fast forwarding to the good part so you can get the whole thing, right? That, that's, that's what this chapter is. Now, just like we did last week, I actually just want to read the whole chapter before we dig into it. And so I'm going to read here, um, and I'm going to act like I had it pulled up, but I actually didn't have it pulled up, but I have the internet, so now I have it pulled up. Uh, Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4 is where I'm going to read from. It's uh, 18 verses or 22 verses, and um, 
we are going to read the whole thing. So again, like last week, you can go home and pat yourself on the back. You read a whole chapter of the Bible in church today. Here's what it says. Ruth chapter 4. I'm reading from the ESV, but whatever you've got is fine. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. There there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and, have, and, and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And that's Ruth chapter 4. So before we get into a specific text, um, I just want to say kudos I'm giving to myself for not mispronouncing any of those names. (laughs) Thought I totally would, but I didn't. So before we get into this next text, we need a little bit of background on Israel. Israel had this idea of redemption in the very DNA of who they were as a people. In the Old Testament, the idea of a redeemer goes right on back to the time of Moses when God rescues the Israelites from the slavery in Egypt. Now, if you've studied the people of Israel at all, you know that that's a theme that just is constantly there. God rescued you out of slavery from Egypt. He rescued you out of slavery from Egypt. They were God's people. They were in deep trouble. So God comes to their aid. He rescues 
them. He sends plagues on the Egyptians until they give in and they let the Israelites go. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. He goes after them, tries to recapture his slaves and God parts the Red Sea so the Israelites could escape. He redeems, he rescues, he saves them. That's a mighty act of rescue. And so from then on, the people of Israel refer to God as God, their redeemer, the one who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. If it, Exodus 15, Psalm 78, Proverbs 23, Isaiah 47, it's all over the place. So their history as a nation really begins with redemption, and this principle becomes made permanent in the law that God gave through Moses. So God tells them in his law that he wants them to be redeemers too. So here's a little bit of how it worked. When an Israelite family would have become very poor, if they, if they fell on hard times and became poor, they and, they and they would have had to sell their land to survive, the nearest male relative, the kinsman redeemer, would have the responsibility of rescuing them from poverty by buying their land back from them and restoring it to the family. So this is called the restoration of property, the redemption of property, Leviticus 25. If they become so poor, though, that they had to sell themselves into slavery, which was a thing they did, a rich relative would rescue them by buying their freedom. Again, this is called redemption. In Leviticus 25 as well. And then finally, if a man died leaving a widow without children, this is the situation that Ruth and Naomi have found themselves in, their nearest male relative had to step in and marry his widow and enable her to have children. So this is a situation for Ruth, right? So that they could inherit their father's property. Now pay attention to this part. So that they could inherit their father's property and keep it in the family. This was a third kind of redemption. And so... In this kind of situation, remember the backdrop, this is an overtly patriarchal culture. In this type of situation, marriage is not necessarily about love. It's at least not love in the romantic sense that we think of love, right? It's much more about ensuring that families survive and keeping this property in the family. It's, it's a little bit of a form of social security, to be honest. That's what's going on here. God is making sure that people are taken care of. But it seems from this story that Boaz, he's different. It seems that he loved Ruth and he wanted to marry her for the normal reasons we would think of marriage. But first, he has to consider Naomi and what remains of the family property. Now, Naomi, Naomi wasn't, she was destitute, but she wasn't totally, totally destitute yet. She has this piece of land we read about in verse 3, a parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech, but she was going to sell it to survive. Okay, She was going to sell it to survive, which this brings us to now the opening scene of chapter 4. We've, you know, scene has broken on the threshold or the threshing floor, and now we've got a new scene if we're doing this in a movie. And what we're about to see actually, uh, if we'll look, is actually more than one redeemer in this text. So let's look at the beginning of chapter 4. It begins with Boaz going to the town gate and sitting down there and ordering the elders around, which has never worked for me, right? You never just show up at a place and be like, hey, 10 of you, come here and sit down, and it works. But it worked for Boaz. This was a very important place. Now, we're not going to get into the shoes, okay? The shoes were self-explanatory. If you caught it, they exchanged shoes. It's a weird form of a contract. That's a whole thing. But it's a very important place at the town gate. This is where... These village elders would gather, they would hear complaints, they would settle disputes between members of the community. So think of this as uh, like Paul in the New Testament goes to the Areopagus. We would have maybe uh, the town square idea. That's kind of what this place is. Now, this is also the place, though, that business happened. This is uh, especially business that required formalities, okay, that required 
getting something, um, getting something signed if, if it was us, right? This is a place that formality got, could be witnessed. Uh, and so Boaz is probably expecting his business about Ruth and Naomi to be settled there, right? He says as much in the previous chapter. I'm going to go take care of this right away. And he seems to be in luck, or it's providence, or it's the Bible telling this specific story to us, whatever you want to say, because as soon as he gets there, somebody comes along who holds, basically who holds the, the key to what Boaz wants to get done. It's the other redeemer shows up. This is the person simply referred to as the redeemer in verse one. This is the one that Naomi mentions. And so this is the first mention of actually a redeemer in this text in Ruth chapter four. And immediately, if this is a movie, immediately the music is going to build a little bit of tension, right? Because as Boaz has already told Ruth back in 312, this man is nearer to her uh, in Naomi than Boaz is himself. And so he's the relative with the most entitlement to act on their behalf if he chooses to do so. So everything depends on what this guy decides to do. And since Boaz likes to do things the right way, he's a man of honor. He's going about this the right way, right? He, he could have ambushed him. He could have taken him out. He could have forced him, but he doesn't do that. He's an honorable man, and he wants to resolve this in an honorable manner. And so he's come to the town gate at the beginning of this chapter knowing I could lose everything I want here. And so he explains the situation in verses 3 and 4. And initially, the Redeemer says, oh, yeah, I'll do it. Great, I'll buy the land. But Boaz is pretty shrewd, right? Because at this point, the matter, this matter is settled. It's done. Once he just says... I'll take care of the property. And if you notice, yes, Ruth is part of that transaction. That's just part of the world they live in. Once that's done and the, the first redeemer is going to buy this, then that's it. For Boaz, this is, this is bad news because there's no more to this than property. And, and the next thing that he wants to talk about is going to shift the conversation. So he says, though, well, what are you going to do about Ruth? Boaz has a lot to lose, but he has to deal with this. He can't be secretive about it. So he goes on, verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Now, fortunately for Boaz, or providentially for Boaz, however you want to look at it, this first redeemer seems to be strictly a businessman. He's... He doesn't seem actually that interested in marrying Ruth. Why? Because this is where Boaz is really shrewd and smart. Boaz knows what he's doing here, right? If he's this successful of a businessman, he's not a dummy. And so he speaks in the order he speaks in on purpose. He talks about, he talks about the land, and then he says, well, maybe you didn't think about this. Because in the end, that redeemer, if he takes Ruth and and ends up with a child with her, which is the, that's what's supposed to happen, he's actually going to lose out in the end. Why? He'll have another person to support, two, in fact, because Ruth is going to have a baby, and he's going to have her mother-in-law as well. Ruth is going to bring her mother-in-law with her. So any gain that he might make from using the field is probably going to be used up to support them. And on top of that, if and when Ruth has children, those children will inherit the field if she dies or when she dies. So this man will actually eventually lose the money he paid for it, will not have increased his assets, but will actually have decreased his assets, meaning he'll have less to leave to his own children. And this is what Boaz is counting on. And so this redeemer declines. He deals himself out of the whole situation. And in verse 6, he says, I cannot redeem it for myself. 
lest I impair my own inheritance, right? Hear what he's saying. If I redeem this myself, I will have less to give to my kids as inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now, based on chapter three, it's exactly what Boaz wants to happen, isn't it? I mean, that's what, that's what the whole thing was about at the threshing floor. And he almost certainly did it this way, hoping this would work this way. He, he was shrewd, but he wasn't underhanded. He wasn't being, uh, he wasn't playing outside the rules. He was just being smart within the rules. He hasn't done anything dishonorable. He hasn't tried to get Ruth by crooked means. And now, though, the way is open for him to marry her in good faith, with a clear conscience, and we see that in verse 13. Not only that, but God puts his seal on their marriage by blessing them. In verse 13, they have a son. And again, remember, a son is a sign of blessing, especially for this culture. So their marriage is doubly blessed. It's blessed by God who opens up the way for it to happen. And then it's blessed because they have a child and for them, especially a son. And it's also blessed in verse 11 by all the people who were at the gate and the elders. They wish them well and they pray for them. So that's kind of the first redeemer we see, right? That's the, the first redeemer is this guy who doesn't want to be part of it. The second redeemer we see, of course, is Boaz. And he's a complete contrast to the first redeemer. The first redeemer doesn't want responsibilities. Boaz does. The first redeemer is self-interested. Boaz seems to be interested in taking care and doing what's right. The first redeemer seems to be dishonorable based on the fact that he doesn't want to deal with this. The second, honorable, right? Because the first, under that law, had some obligation to do it. The fact that he doesn't means he kind of cares about himself first. And that first redeemer didn't redeem. So he's a failed redeemer, but Boaz does. He's a true redeemer. And then we see another one come along. Because the Bible, which is this is how literature in the Bible works, somebody gets pregnant and has a baby in one sentence, right, in this text. Ruth has a baby, which means that Naomi has what now? A grandson. And so as she takes him in her arms, the women of Bethlehem then pronounce a blessing on her as well. Listen, I want you to listen carefully to what they say in verses 14 and 15. And don't lose sight of the fact that Naomi got to nurse this baby. That's so meaningful. The women said to Naomi, verses 14 and 15, Blessed be the Lord, Lord is in all caps, Yahweh, the proper name for God. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Now, this is a little side note of context, but this comment about Ruth meaning more than seven sons is really important for us not to miss. Remember the setting is this overtly patriarchal society. We, we said in the first week, if you don't have sons, you might as well be dead as a woman. That was kind of the idea. And so um, for Ruth to hear that she means more than seven sons, incredibly powerful for her to hear. This is one of those little moments in the Bible where the Bible kind of just subtly dismantles the worldview that it's in. Subversive. Their world would say that one son is definitely worth more than seven daughters, but the women of God have just spoken this blessing that tears that down. Ruth, you're worth more to her than seven sons. So Ruth has this son, Naomi has this grandson, and this only can mean one thing. The baby boy that Naomi is holding in her lap is a redeemer too. 
This is what they say. He's a gift from Ruth. She did what she said she would do in the beginning of this book. Where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Your God is going to be my God. She is stuck with her through all of this and loved her all the way through grief, pain, and all the way through to this moment. But this baby is also a gift from Boaz. He acted honorably. He took Ruth as his wife. But most of all, he, this baby, is a gift from God. And he is the final answer from God to Naomi's bitterness and emptiness. Now, we always want to say this. Yes, this baby boy meant so much to her. But it doesn't mean she still didn't experience the pain and the bitterness and the grief. That's just how life works in this world. Now, Naomi is not an old woman yet, as, as we see there. That, that there's a time coming for that. There, there's time for this baby boy to grow into a young man who is going to what? Renew her life, support her in her old age. And then this third redeemer, you can't miss this either, is a baby boy born in Bethlehem. And, and it opens this story up to what? The future. Not just the near future, for Naomi and for these people in Bethlehem. But obviously, if you know your Bible and you know the story of God, this opens things up for the distant future, which is shown on intentionally by the way the book ends. That genealogy is not just randomly stuck in there. This is an illusion, a foreshadow to something else. So that this chapter, chapter 4, this whole book concludes with the naming of the newborn son, and then it gives an account of what follows from his birth. It says this, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, whose kingdom will have no end. Right? Uh, kingdom have no end. I added that in there, but the theme is there. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And you know, if you know your Bible, that Jesus comes from the line of David. So the fact that this baby is laying in Naomi's lap rather than Ruth's and is named by the women of Bethlehem rather than Boaz is suggesting that something is going on here that the parents, Boaz and Ruth, couldn't have predicted, and that they can't control. This child has a larger significance to the story of God's people than simply being their baby. The baby born in Bethlehem turns out to be the, great, to, to be the grandfather of King David. And this is only the beginning, right? Because the royal line of David continues right through the Old Testament and into the New Testament until it reaches its climax in another baby who is also born in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 1. And just in case we're not getting the magnitude of this, Matthew reproduces actually the last few verses of Ruth in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 verses 4 to 6. So what happened in Bethlehem in the, quote, days when the judges ruled was small, but it was also massive. This is huge. It had cosmic significance for God's story of redemption. Right? Because this second baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus, certainly he's a redeemer. You shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior, that's what the angel said to Joseph, for he will what? Save his people from their sins. And the word save is another way to say redeem. So Jesus came 
To do what? To redeem people. That's what he says in Mark chapter 10. And we see this so clearly in the life of Jesus. His mission extended far beyond Israel. It includes, thankfully, people of all nations, and that's you and me. So with Jesus, his people takes on a whole new global cosmic meaning, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, of whatever background we are. And so the acceptance of Ruth into Israel in the time of the judges was a sign of a greater reality to come, that people through this same line would be accepted into the family of God. And what does Jesus redeem us from? He redeems us from our sins that had broken. We talk about three relationships that we have fundamentally. Our relationship to God, our relationship to one another, and even our relationship to God's creation. And all three of those are in schism until Jesus comes to redeem. He redeems us from our sin that had broken that relationship with God, from the emptiness of a life without God, and he redeems us from the judgment we deserve for rejecting God. And he does this by his own blood. The Apostle Peter says this, speaking to us as followers of Jesus in 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed, you were redeemed, we might say, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so Jesus is the redeemer of redeemers. He's the redeemer that all other redeemers point to. And so this theme of a redeemer starts early on in the book of Ruth with the description of Naomi's desperate condition. Remember her condition? Famine, widow, poor, destitute. And then we see this subtle hint with the introduction of Boaz as a relative of her husband, a worthy man at the beginning of chapter 2. Then it's introduced directly with the revelation in, in the middle of chapter 2 that Boaz is one of the redeemers. And then it's taken further by Boaz's promise to redeem Ruth in chapter 3. But then we get to chapter 4, and that theme finally, the movie, the music bursts, right? It has a climactic moment. It's like the, the springtime of this story, things bloom. In chapter 4, we see in the open this, this fulfillment of this Redeemer talk. And it points us towards Christ, for those of us who look at the Scriptures the way that we look at, through the lens of Christ, back through redemptive history. So, so the book of Ruth is a story of love that is redeeming, or redeeming love. And I don't mean the book that I know a bunch of you ladies read recently, but this is a story of redeeming love, right? There is the Redeemer who didn't go ahead because he didn't love. Then there's the Redeemer who does go through with this because he does love. Then we see the son, the, the, the grandson, Obed, who is God's love gift to Ruth and to Naomi and to his whole people. And then lastly, in the closing verses of Ruth, we see Jesus alluded to the great son of David, God's gift to who? To all of his people who will come to him. And so we see these redeemers show up on the scene. And what we're seeing, what we're watching is the work of a sovereign God who quietly but powerfully does what? He works all things together for good for the sake of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8. It's also, though, part of a much bigger story. It's part of a tapestry in which the, the full-on outworking of this, the full-on um, climax of this, of that same loving purpose is going to be seen in the future. It's a tapestry of the love and the care of God for his own people. That 
when thinking about the love and the redemption we see in the book of Ruth, I want to end with just this quote. One commentator said this. It's a wonder to marvel at, this love. It's something to sing about. It's a truth never to be forgotten, especially when we find ourselves betrayed again by our own sinfulness. And when the moral and the spiritual chaos all around and within seem overwhelming, we need never despair because a Redeemer has been born. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these stories that all, as one of my favorite kids' Bibles says, all these stories whisper your name, Jesus. So we thank you that we've seen just this hint in the genealogy that this Redeemer, this Obed, this baby boy is part of your plan to rescue and redeem and reconcile all things to yourself. And we thank you that we're in that lineage. We've been grafted into that family. We are part of your children now by the blood of your son. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you. We, we seek you to come and, and fill us in the way that you do so that we might display the fruit of your, your spirit. So that we would be people of love, joy, and peace in this world that we would be your witnesses by your empowering presence in our lives. So we pray all this to the glory of, of, of you, God, our Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit through what Jesus has done for us. And we say along with the church throughout history, amen.